You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. stragglers from the traffic, but we'll welcome them in when they arrive. Uh, my name is Caitlin Mulrine. I'm the Director of Philanthropy and Advocacy for NAMI Metropolitan Baltimore, and I'm delighted to welcome you this evening to our Writers Live event. Um, and many thanks to our partners and friends at the Pratt Library for co-hosting uh, this incredibly important conversation on treatment and care for mental health during Mental Health Month. Before I introduce our speakers this evening, I'd like to first share a little bit of information about NAMI Metro Baltimore's programs. Uh, We offer mental health education, support, and advocacy services uh, for both people who uh, live with a mental health condition as well as their family members. We also host community education and awareness events uh, throughout the year. Uh, We're currently gearing up for our biggest event of the year, NAMI Walks, which will be Saturday, May 20th at the Baltimore Inner Harbor, and we hope you will join us then. All of our programs are peer-led, recovery-focused, and confidential, and they're offered free to all of our participants. Uh, So please be sure to stop by our resource table um, on your way out this evening and grab uh, information about our events as well as the Pratt Libraries. Our speakers this evening will lead a thought-provoking conversation on involuntary mental health treatment uh, and the many questions that it raises for individuals, families, clinicians, lawyers, and advocates. They'll be addressing the consequences when individuals with mental health conditions don't get the treatment that they need in a timely and effective manner. Dr. Ann Hansen is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the University of Maryland and the Johns Hopkins University. She's the director of Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship at the University of Maryland, where she teaches courses in mental health and criminal law. Dr. Dinah Miller works in private practice here in Baltimore. She's an instructor of psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She previously worked in four community mental health centers in the greater Baltimore area, and she's the past president of the Maryland Psychiatric Society. Together, Drs. Hansen and Miller are co-authors of Shrink Wrap, Three psychiatrists explain their work. Their new book, Committed, which they'll be discussing this evening, explores issues of involuntary treatment and practices through first-hand accounts from both sides of the issue. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ann Hansen and Dr. Miller. Thank you, Caitlin, and thank you for having us tonight. This is a very specialized topic, and I understand from... We're competing with the Metallica Conference and (laughs) CNN with James Comey, and oh my. Um, I'm not going to be talking about James Comey tonight. So um, I guess you start with the question of, like, why am I interested in involuntary psychiatric care, of of all things? And um, my interest came about because Anne um, and a third psychiatrist, Steve Davis, and I have had a blog called Shrink Wrap since April of 2006. So we're now over 11 years old. We don't post the way we used to. Um, But we used to post a lot. And what we noticed was that when the topic came to involuntary treatment, the comments got really heated and people got really upset. Um, And the tenor of most of them were that people were upset about having been involuntarily treated, 
Um, some people were just upset that psychiatrists even could do this, um, and not necessarily people who had been subject to it. But we heard a lot from anti-psychiatry um, groups. Now, there's also obviously strong groups like NAMI who also have feelings about this. And so I became interested not so much in the should you be for or against, though ultimately our publisher said you have to make a statement. Um, so we, we came up with a statement. But I became interested in the battle. Um, so I'll talk about the battleground. I'm going to talk about the different stakeholders who have an interest in this topic. Anne's going to talk a little about the history of involuntary treatment, and she's going to show a little, a short three-minute video. And then we're going to try to leave a lot of time for questions and answers, because this is really a dialogue topic. Um, except that my, OK, my, uh, we'll probably have a few technical difficulties, because we're not Metallica. Um, <laughs> well, Anne might be. So, so what's the battle about? If you've got a, a battle, theoretically, you need to have something you're arguing about. Um, so it, I've sort of divided it into four things. One is the standard for involuntary commitment to hospitals. And I'm going to tell you that the discussion of involuntary treatment in this country isn't one discussion, but it's 50 discussions, because it's a state law issue. It's not a national issue. Um, and different states have different standards. Um, some, some in Maryland we talk about dangerousness, other states talk about um, being gravely disabled, and there are people who would like the standard to be a need for treatment. And if you know what any of those three terms means, that's great, because I can't say that I fully do, and some states define it differently than others. Um, the second thing the battle is about is outpatient civil commitment, or can you make somebody get treatment when they're not in a hospital on an ongoing basis as an outpatient? Um, it's also called assisted outpatient treatment in New York, mandated outpatient treatment in some states, or just outpatient civil commitment. The third thing is a patient's right to refuse treatment and medications, and I'll leave that one to Anne, but in Maryland we have very interesting struggles about that you know, in the legislature almost every year. Um, and finally, a patient's right to refuse release of their psychiatric information to caretakers. And I'm not going to talk about that tonight because it's, it's its own issue that's not about um, involuntary care. So um, in my world of the battlefield or the battleground, it's orange because I like orange. And the troops are aligned on two different sides. And there's a, a line down the middle. So there's the pro side and the against side. But there are shades of gray. And so I'm going to talk about people, the, the stakeholders, in terms of the groups that are most in favor of involuntary care and then go towards the other side of the battleground towards the people who are or the groups that are against involuntary care. So on the far side of the pro is um, Dr. E. Fuller-Torrey e. Fuller -Torrey and the Treatment Advocacy Center. And Dr. Torrey is a schizophrenia expert who founded the Treatment Advocacy Center about 20 years ago. And the idea behind this is it's about advocating for people with untreated mental, major mental illness to get care. So the Treatment Advocacy Center, they have not given their consent for my four breakdowns of the major points, but... Um, I have talked in some detail with Dr. Tory, and some of the things I advocate for are that we need more state hospital beds. And to give you some measure of state hospital beds in this country, um, in the 1950s, we had about a half million state hospital beds. 
Now we have about 44 or 45,000 state hospital beds. During that time, our population has doubled. So we have very few state hospital beds, and they're mostly used for forensic patients or people who are involved in the criminal justice system. He talks about mandated care with a standard of need for treatment as opposed to dangerousness. There are, um, the Treatment Advocacy Center is a proponent of outpatient commitment laws, um, and they are very active legislatively and have um, lobbied in Maryland to get outpatient commitment. And Maryland is one of five states that does not have any outpatient commitment laws for people who are civilly committed, um, people who have not committed crimes and are not going through the, the criminal justice system. And finally, he talks about anosognosia as justifying involuntary treatment. And so let me, die, uh, let me define that word for you. But <coughs> anosognosia is the idea that there's a neural deficit in people that makes them not understand that they have an illness. It's not a psychological defense mechanism of denying that there's an illness, but it's really a, a medical issue that somebody can't see that they're sick. And the reason that this is important is because Dr. Tori says it's not a civil rights issue. This is a medical illness, and this is a medical problem that you don't know that you need help. Um, and so we shouldn't leave people to be ill when they could be treated and be better. Uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is next in our group, and they were kind enough to invite us to come tonight. Um, it's a grassroots organization started by parents of people with serious mental illness. And as uh, Caitlin's already mentioned, the mission is support, education, and advocacy. So my construction of NAMI is that NAMI has a bit of an identity crisis. That it was started by parents of people with severe mental illness, but it's now grown to almost 200,000 members. And it includes people with illnesses, and not necessarily Severe mental illnesses. Sorry, the internet keeps popping up when you, when you don't want it. Um, and so there's a little bit of tension within the organization as to who are they trying to serve. The people, the parents who have wanted um, easy, legislation to make it easier to cause people to get care are somewhat at odds with the consumers who are part of the movement. Um, and so we've found, I've talked to people who said, I don't want to be in NAMI because they're not um, championing, championing my cause. So I don't know if you'll agree with me that there's a little bit of an identity crisis there or not. And I was asked specifically to talk about my meeting with Ron Honberg, who um, I can't remember his exact title, but he's in Arlington. Um, he's one of the... Uh, Caitlin, do you know his title? He's the director of federal policy. Okay, the director of federal policy. So for committed, for every chapter, I tried to find a person to focus on with their story because I thought the topic would be dry and boring if you didn't have people to talk about. So instead of talking about NAMI alone, I talked about it in relationship to Mr. Honberg, who was kind enough to agree to meet with me. And mostly what I remember about this meeting was that I was late, and I was just horrified that I was late. So I arrived kind of a basket case distraught that I was late, and he was incredibly kind and we had a wonderful lunch. Um, and it was one of my favorite interviews, even though I felt so bad about being late. Um, but he, he sort of agreed with the idea of that there is some type of 
tension in the organization, but NAMI gets on the in favor of involuntary care side. On my, I have to tell you, my orange battlefield, it's just mine. You can have your own, and you can, but you can't use orange. Um, so the third group I'm placing on the pro side is the American Psychiatric Association. It's an organization of 38,000 psychiatrists in this country. Um, as psychiatrists, we're comfortable with the standard being dangerousness for involuntary treatment, as opposed to something like competency, meaning that you're not able to make a decision. It's that you're dangerous and mentally ill. Um, and APA has not traditionally had a formal stance on involuntary treatment, um, so it, it's, it's a little hard to put them on the pro side, but they did me a favor in December of 2015. They came out with a very carefully worded stance um, in favor of outpatient commitment. Um, it, it is very carefully worded because psychiatrists are not all aligned on this issue either. Okay, so let's move to the other side of the battlefield, I'm still in orange. Um, the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law, and I'm just going to read you their mission statement. Um, the Bazelon Center envisions an America where people who have mental illnesses or developmental disabilities exercise their own life choices and have accesses to the resources that enable them to participate fully in their communities. They are a group of lawyers. They have a psychologist. Every state has a disability law center, and Maryland's disability law center is very active in Annapolis during the legislative session, advocating for the rights of people to make their own decisions. I put in the Sachs Institute for Mental Health Policy and Ethics. Ellen Sachs is a, an attorney. She's also a psychoanalyst, and she also suffers from schizophrenia. And she's written a memoir called... Um, the center cannot hold, and she's going to be speaking with us at APA. So if you come to the meeting in San Diego later this month, please do come to our session um, on Wednesday <coughs> afternoon. Also on this side of the equation is the recovery movement. The recovery concept speaks to maintaining consumers' autonomy and having them take a proactive role in their treatment. It's a backlash to psychiatry as a paternalistic field where people have sometimes been given dismal prognoses. The recovery movement was started by consumers, and it includes an emphasis on peer supports. And so why do I have the word consumers in red? And I have it in red to remind myself that I want to talk about the words, because writing this book was very touchy in terms of the words. Um, originally, the title of the book that I thought of was Against Their Will, Perspectives on Involuntary Psychiatric Care. Then I got an agent who said, that title will never sell. So changed it to Committed, the Battle Over Forced Psychiatric Care. It flows smoothly. I liked it. Anne liked it. The agent liked it. Then I got a publisher, and the publisher says, we're not using the word forced in the title of our book. So it became the Battle Over Involuntary Psychiatric Care. And so consumer is highlighted because I'm a doctor. I see patients. The social worker in the office next to me sees clients. If you're talking in Annapolis or talking in a general way, the politically correct term is consumer. And I'll tell you that um, kind of I, I have this vision of people running at me at a, running at me with a knife and fork. But um, and if you're somebody who feels that you've been injured by psychiatric services, you're a psychiatric survivor. Um, so the word force and involuntary have their own meanings, and they had meanings to everyone. 
that I spoke with. Um, the term you use to talk about the person using the services has meaning. Um, I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe medications. If you don't like them, they're psychiatric drugs. So lots of words, lots of meanings. I'll leave you to whatever you'd like. Um, Mind Freedom International is a, a human, they call themselves a human rights group in the mental health system. They're very far along on the field. It was started by David Oakes, a Harvard student in the 1970s as the Mental Patients Liberation Front. In 1986, they became Mind Freedom, and they are psychiatric survivors, and they're very clear they're survivors, who assert they have been injured by the treatment they received, and they want to protect other people from the same faith. Okay. Finally, we have the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. Dr. Thomas Shaz is a psychiatrist who was at, uh, or he was a psychiatrist at SUNY Syracuse. He wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness in 1961, and he joined with the Church of Scientology in 1969 to form the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. And I think that the fact that they have a museum called Psychiatry of the Industry of Death says it all, and I don't need to say anything else about this group. <laughs> So they're not on my um, orange battlefield, but I'm throwing in Mad in America. And Mad in America is a, um, a website started, it's a website and it's a book by um, journalist Robert Whitaker. And Whitaker has written Mad in America and Anatomy, or Anatomy of an Epidemic. And his contention just, isn't just that psychiatric treatments don't work, or that psychiatric treatments are harmful. His contention is that psychiatric treatments cause psychiatric illnesses. Um, I'll, I'll, he, he's very much against the use of um, psychotropic drugs, especially for the long term. So here's my battlefield. It's now filled in. You'll notice the, uh, the Treatment Advocacy Center, because of its identity crisis, NAMI's in a little cloud there. <laughs> ABA's kind of sitting on the border trying to, to, to not take a side while taking. Basilon and the recovery group are about the same place, and CCHR and Mind Freedom probably belong in their own corner um, somewhere. And I only put one guy with a cannon because it was too many cannons. <laughs> so I want to suggest to you that we live in a world where opinions of all kinds are sharply polarized. And if you don't believe me, please just turn on the news. You can flip from <laughs> CNN to Fox, and you can see if you think we're all on the same planet. But people do get very sharply polarized on almost anything. Um, we value autonomy in medical decision-making, and I think we all value autonomy in medical decision-making. And when there's controversy about the validity of a treatment, then there's even more controversy about forcing it on people. So if you start with the idea that involuntary care is a good thing, that it helps people get well at times when they may be too ill to even realize they're sick, and it enables them to stay housed, working, and connected to their loved ones, and out of jails and hospitals, then you do it a lot. Obviously, you don't do it to keep them out of hospitals if you're doing it to get them in the hospital, but often our current length of stay is about seven days for a voluntary patient and roughly 12 days for an involuntary patient. Um, but if you start with the idea that forced care is potentially traumatizing in a way that leaves some patients with years of distress, which may dissuade them from getting care later, perhaps at a time when they need it even more, then you change your threshold for committing people to involuntary treatment. 
But the issue is really complicated. We have the patient. Uh, and if you're very polarized, you don't want to see this as complicated. It becomes very easy. But when somebody walks into an emergency room or is brought into an emergency room by the police or has a family member who wants them to be hospitalized, all, all these things are going to go on at once. We have the patient who may be suffering and may be ill and may not know they're ill um, and who ideally should have the right to refuse treatment. Um, and we have the family who watches a loved one suffer, deteriorate, and miss all the wonderful opportunities that life has to offer, and who may be at risk of violent behavior. We have the doctor who wants to do what's best for his patient, and who wants to follow both legal and ethical mandates, who wants to be paid for his work, and who doesn't want to be sued for a tragic outcome. We have society who might be at risk of violent behavior, we have the taxpayer who foots the bill for disability payments, lost productivity, and institutionalization. And finally, we have the insurer who doesn't want to pay for much of anything. And so all of these issues are going on at the same time. So let's make a few assumptions, and then I'm going to read you just a little bit from the book. I won't read a lot because I think that gets boring. But So let's start with the assumption that psychiatric care may be traumatizing and fears of involuntary or unkind treatment may discourage people from getting help. Let's also agree that it's never in a patient's best interest to seriously harm themselves or somebody else. And that sometimes there really is no choice but to commit someone to the hospital for care. And sometimes we're in a position where we do need to use physical force just to keep everyone safe. Um, before I go on with how to prevent it, I just want to um, read a little bit. Um, and to keep this topic interesting, we had two patients that we followed, or consumers or survivors, who we followed through the course of um, their bouts of involuntary treatment. One is, um, is her, her pseudonym for the book was Eleanor. Um, if you're interested, I asked her why Eleanor. Um, and she said because she liked Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, and so her husband in the book is Frank. Neither of them are Eleanor or Frank. Um, and Eleanor is someone who felt very injured by her care, as we'll see. And she starts with, I would rather die than go in again. I'm not depressed, and my psychiatrist considers me normal, but I can't live through that again. The staff was abusive, demeaning, and dismissive. I felt in fear for my life. Any lack of cooperation was meant with physical and chemical punishment. I could hear, feel Eleanor's distress as she talked about her experience of being committed to a psychiatric hospital. Years had passed, but she still, still felt injured by her 21-day hospitalization in a private psychiatric hospital in Northern California. I still can't tolerate being in a car with windows closed because of the time spent in the confinement room with the lights out and no air circulating into the room. After several hours, the tiny room runs short of oxygen, so I needed to lie on the floor with my lips next to the space under the door, trying to suck some air through the single crack. I was afraid I would die in there of suffocation. That ought to be legal. Some of what was done to us should be illegal. Violation is a feeling we heard echoed by many patients, although some observers might dismiss Eleanor's distress. After all, she did get better, and people don't suffocate in seclusion rooms. And some might contend that Eleanor's behavior gave the staff 
no choice but to hospitalize her and place her in a seclusion room. Um, and I'll tell you, Eleanor is a woman who had her first episode of major mental illness in her mid-50s. Um, she had an ex uh, a set of <coughs> events. Her father died. She was going back and forth across the country, um, helping with his last days. It brought up for her all sorts of feelings about how abusive he had been. Somewhere in there, her, her dog died. Um, she was managing her own business, uh, and that was very stressful. She spent a day out in the sun. She stopped sleeping. Um, she was chugging Diet Coke with all its caffeine because, um, because she was on a diet. Um, and her husband was out of town for business, and he came back to town to find her. Um, she hadn't slept in days, and she was feeling terrible. So they both decided she should go see her gynecologist because she had been put on progesterone treatments um, recently, and they thought maybe that had something to do with this. And I'm sorry about the distraction of the... Um, and the gynecologist said, you know, everyone gets to their breaking point. And she looked horrible. Um, the gynecologist walked her down to the emergency room. Uh, and it was the only time in her career, at least as of two years ago when I spoke to her, that she had ever done that. Eleanor sat in the emergency room for eight hours. Um, she wasn't given any food. Uh, people came in and asked her about her medicines. She wasn't on any psychotropic medications. And after eight hours, she and her husband just got up and left. On the way home, she started fighting with him. And he said, do you want to go to another emergency room? And she said, yes. So they went in. As they got to the parking lot, he asked her if she was suicidal. And he asked, she asked if... He asked that because he had had bipolar disorder, and um, or he, I guess you, you take it, you have it forever, but um, he said after they got married, he was able to stop lithium. He had not had any subsequent episodes, but his psychiatrist had asked him if he was suicidal. He felt like he needed to ask her, and she just started screaming. So screaming, she went into the emergency room where she didn't wait eight hours. If you walk in screaming uncontrollably, somebody comes and gives you some medicine. And then in California, she was put on what's called a 5150-year-old, and she was sent to the hospital. She would have signed in. On the unit, she became terribly psychotic, and her version was that the medicine they gave her in the ER caused this. I could not sort this out. Her husband said she wasn't psychotic. Her gynecologist said she wasn't psychotic. There was nothing in the ER doctor's note but three, three lines. Um, and she, um, she was put on. But while she was there, she was pulling the alarm. She was running into people's rooms telling them that they were on a, um, a mental patient reality TV show. She was hugging other patients. Um, Everybody found her intrusive and troublesome, and she was really quite convinced that a relative had sent the nurses on the unit to kill her. So she really was quite paranoid, and it took a lot of medicine to get her calm, and kind of a crazy cocktail of medicine. So she felt injured by her care. Um, Lily was the second person for our story, and I'll tell you, her story is not as um, intricate because she was happy with her treatment. She felt like it helped her. And when you like your care, there's a little less to say. So Lily became ill at an age more typical for a first episode of major mental illness. Um, in college, she too felt her episode, the first episode was precipitated by the death of her father. Um, she's a college student at a top institution in our country. Um, she became, at some point, very paranoid and very sick. So she wrote, or she said, 
Nine years ago, I was voluntarily committed. I was extremely paranoid and afraid that people were tracking me down and that they thought I was a serial murderer. My life was disintegrating at the time. I was paranoid with my professors at grad school and getting lots of incompletes. And I was accusing people at my job of weird things and calling the police on them. I was convinced my landlord was spying on me. It took me a long time, probably a couple of years, to fully get fully better. The involuntary hospitalization was what got me started down that road. It was a stopping point from the spiral of psychosis and dysfunction I was in, and it allowed me to realize I was ill and put my full focus on getting better. I don't think I would have been committed if I didn't have a psychiatrist who was treating me and a family who cared about me. I consider myself pretty lucky, even though the police came and brought me in. Nothing really stands out about hospitalization at the time I was the most terrified I had ever been. And it also took Lily a couple of weeks to get well, and I'm going to tell you both of these women have done very well. Um, Eleanor is off medications for many years after her discharge from the hospital. She changed careers. She went back and got a, another um, a certification. Um, Lily did not finish graduate school. Um, and she had more hospitalizations, and as she continues to be on medications for bipolar disorder, um, but she lives independently, she has friends, she has a job, um, she had spent a period of time on disability and was able to come off, um, and um, she lives in another state from her family. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to get this to... You have to click on the okay. On the okay? Okay. Thank you. I do it all the time. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm real. Okay. So I want to ask the question: How can we prevent involuntary care, or at least make it less traumatizing? And the, one of the answers that we came up with over and over again was make voluntary care more accessible. In this country, it's, it can be very hard to, to get in with a psychiatrist. And what happens is that, and, and you're expected to negotiate a very difficult system with your insurance and getting appointments and not being able to find a psychiatrist um, at a time when you're really sick and feeling very bad, uh, badly. So we kept hearing that people would spin out of control because they got caught later in the course of an illness rather than earlier. So I think the first thing we came up with was voluntary care needs to be more accessible. Police training to minimize injuries, death, and embarrassment, and to increase patient cooperation along with police awareness and diversion. So you want the police to know when somebody's ill and not, not be quite so on edge and so likely to arrest somebody. Um, mental health courts are one form of diversion for people who've committed crimes if you've committed um, uh, not certain crimes, you, the, the, um, and I'll tell you, the crisis intervention police teams are popping up all over the country, and mental health courts are popping up all over the country. And in the book, uh, I shadowed uh, Judge Jack Lesser in Baltimore. Um, we need better medications with fewer side effects, because there are some very real reasons people don't want to take the medications we have to offer. And we need to decrease stigma. And I just want to say, in terms of politicians, you can't say, let's decrease stigma, and at the same time say, we need to force people to get psychiatric care so they don't become mass murderers. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work. So um, Caitlin had asked me to talk a little about access to care, and um, I eliminated all my slides with figures. 
because I figured I was going to run out of time with a second speaker. So I'm just going to leave it as access to care when you're down and out. It can be hard to find a psychiatrist. Um, and so I thought maybe it would be helpful to tell people how to find a psychiatrist. Um, and if you don't have insurance or you have Medicaid, it can be really hard. The clinics, most of them don't will tell you, we're not taking patients today, call back tomorrow. And, I, and, and it's, it's quite a um, hassle. I think the um, Sharfstein Center was the only place I could find that was actively taking patients. And they might um, see Sharfstein. What's that? And they might see me. And they might see Dr. Sharfstein if they go. So um, if you need a psychiatrist, ask a psychiatrist, any psychiatrist. Ask a primary care doctor. They're used to referring people. If you have a friend or a relative who has a psychiatrist they like, ask if that psychiatrist can see you or if they know somebody who can. If you see a social worker or a psychologist for psychotherapy, ask them. They may be able to refer you to someone for medication management. Call your state psychiatric society. And finally, there are a lot of organizations with Find a Psychiatrist websites. The Maryland Psychiatric Society has one. The APA has one. And my favorite is the Psychology Today website has one. Because the, one, the Psychology Today website charges a small amount to be on it. But it means that they're doctors who want to get patients, so they have openings. Um, whereas if you call them the, these other organizations, you may get a name of a psychiatrist who actually doesn't see patients. They may be a researcher. They may be full. Um, so I like the Psychology Today website a lot. For a while, I was running um, uh, off of our um, Psychiatric Society listserv. I was asking people, do you have openings, and posting on a site called um, MarylandPsychiatrists.net. But after about a year of that, I think I, um, I got a bit tired. And so I'm going to let Anne talk about um, the history of civil commitment. Um, and if you want to ask a couple questions, and we'll allow a lot of time at the Just end. Just What can you do if you don't have insurance? Oh, if well, treatment. if you need emergent treatment, you really are sort of forced to use the, the emergency room. Um, if you don't have insurance, traditionally, um, what we've had is community mental health service centers, which serve people based on their address, what's called a catchment area. And the word catchment comes from how the sewers drain. Um, but it meant that every person was assigned to a center based on their address. And in recent years, that has broken down. And you're no longer confined to just going to the center where you live. But what's also happened is they've stopped taking patients. So in my four community mental health centers, I worked for 15 years at the Johns Hopkins Community Mental Health Center. And the last time I tried calling to ask, what's the wait like? If you call there, you get told, we have an intake day where everybody who wants to get treatment comes for intake. So you need to come to the next intake day. And if you say, fine, when is that? You get told, oh, a date hasn't been set for that yet. Call back. Well, when should I call back? They don't know. And you call back. And eventually, if you call, you get a date. And so when you show up, there are 65 people waiting to get so it's an awful, so, so I don't have a great answer. Um, um, ask a rich relative to pay um, for out-of-pocket treatment. Um, I think there are less people uninsured with Obamacare. At least there's a mechanism to get insurance, because it, it may be an expensive mechanism, but there is one. For so long, if you had um, a pre-existing condition, you couldn't even get insurance. I'm going to let Ann talk about the background. I don't know if I talked too long. Did I talk too long? Don't answer that. Ooh. Don't answer okay. that. 
All right. So, thanks. So I, I do. We, the way we divided this was that Dr. Miller did the interviews and gathered the stories and wrote up, you know, the, the exciting, intriguing, human interest stuff. I did the boring things because that's what I do. Um, I'm a forensic psychiatrist, which means that I work with people who have serious mental illnesses who are also involved in the criminal justice system. And the theme for what I'm going to be talking about is how the people who are involved in the care and treatment of people with mental illnesses often cover other domains of the world. Okay? So they're also concerned about things like the rights of juveniles, they're concerned about the rights of women, and they also are concerned about people who commit crimes. Okay? So a, a social trend encompasses many groups, not just people with mental illnesses. And so the themes and the trends I'm talking about will cross over into other domains and other vulnerable groups. So I'm going to give you a 200-year overview of the legal history of civil commitment in 10 minutes. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, once upon a time in the good old days, we didn't have to think about civil commitment because there was no place to put anyone. Okay? People with mental illnesses were either cared for or not cared for in their own homes, or they were left to do whatever on the streets. This changed in the 1800s. In 1842, a woman by the name of Dorothea Dix was a Bible school teacher, and she went into a jail in Massachusetts one day to teach a Bible study class, and she came across three women who were mentally ill, who were nude, all crowded in a cell together that was very cold. And she left to go complain to the sheriff, and the sheriff is the person who runs the jail, and she was told, Madam, the mad do not feel pain. And that did it. So she started her movement. And in this time and age, women were not allowed to speak in public in Congress. So she couldn't go testify about any of this stuff. So what happened was that her, her congressman set up a little parlor and allowed her to stay there and to have people come in and meet with her. So she met with delegates and she met with senators and spoke to them about the conditions that she found traveling around in various jails. And the end result of that was that Congress set aside millions of acres of lands specifically for our system of state hospitals that we have now. Okay? And that was an improvement. That was a good thing because it got people out of the streets and out of the jails and into an environment where they could be cared for by qualified people. Okay. Then we had the Civil War, 1860s. And immediately after the Civil War, our country had what was called the Social Reform Movement. And this was sort of like the free love era of the 19th century. So people became very concerned about giving children rights in their own right, okay, because children then were considered the property of the man, okay. Women didn't have any rights, so they, they couldn't hold jobs that would pay them directly. Any income they had had to be paid to their husband or to a male relative. Their children didn't belong to them, so if the marriage broke up, children went with the father, okay. But the people who are concerned with reformation were also concerned about the reformation of criminals. And so they created prisons called reformatories for youthful offenders. And that was sort of the, the atmosphere of the time, was to expand right to care, to, to make people more free, to give them help. Um, and so we had these psychiatric hospitals. 
The challenge back then was that we didn't have any diagnostic criteria. You know, we have challenges with our diagnostic criteria today, but back then they had nothing. And within psychiatry, we were arguing amongst ourselves about what counts as a mental illness. If you go into the medical library at university and go back into the really, really old, what they called then the Journal of Insanity, which is the American Journal of Psychiatry we call it today, you can read from the 1860s published case reports of murderers, a case of homicidal insanity. And the thinking was that if someone kills another person, they must be crazy. Right? And there was a lot of arguments within psychiatry about whether or not sociopaths were mentally ill. Okay? This case, the Packard case, really illustrates the problem that we had deciding who and who shouldn't be committed, who, and who was or wasn't mentally ill. So Mrs. Packard was the wife of a very strict Calvinist minister. Coming back to Bible studies again, she was leading a Bible study, and word got around that within the Bible study she was questioning the tenets of the Calvinist faith, and that caused an argument between her and her husband to the extent that she threatened to leave that church and become a Methodist. <laughs> and that was so alarming that he brought a physician in kind of under a pretext of having a conversation with her, uh, really wanting a psychiatric evaluation. And the physician came away saying, she wants to leave the Calvinist church. She must be nuts. And she was committed to a hospital in, uh, in Wisconsin. And it was Illinois, sorry. Wisconsin comes later. And she was held there for three years. And she only got out with the help of her adult son. While she was in the hospital, you know, this is what it takes to write a book. You have to be, like, put in a place with no other distractions for about three years, I've discovered. Um, but while she was there, she met a number of other women who were committed there by their husbands under very similar circumstances. And this was quite alarming to her. And eventually, when she got out, she published her own book, which was called The Prisoner's Hidden Life, or Insane Asylums Unveiled. It was one of the first exposés of its time. It was very well received. And it led to her being invited, along with eight other women who had been committed, to testify in front of the legislature and talk about their experiences. The end result was that in this particular state, they passed a law that required an actual hearing before someone could be civilly committed. That was 1860s, okay? And that was only in that particular state, okay? Incidentally, while she was in the hospital, her husband sold the house, took the kids, and moved to Massachusetts. She later became a suffragette, so it worked out okay. <laughs> okay, fast forwarding 100 years. Catherine Lake, this is in Washington, D.C. And Miss Lake had dementia, and she wandered away and was found wandering through the streets, somewhat confused, and was admitted to St. Elizabeth's. She was held there for more than three months, she had um, family members who were willing to take her home. They cared about her, but they couldn't guarantee that she wouldn't wander away again, and so the judge did not release her. And the, the, the case in this, the opinion in this case said that a, a court, when determining commitment, must consider what's called the terms least restrictive alternatives. If any of you have had experience with civil commitment hearings, certainly if you've testified in one, you know that term, you have to deal with it. It means you have to consider other ways of caring for this person other than taking away their liberty. This is my favorite case. Now, what I didn't know was that while we were writing the book, Alberto Lesser 
passed away in 2015. And there was a really nice obituary that I was able to track down. And I'm going to show you a video clip in a little bit. This is probably the most historic patient story that influenced the entire country when it comes to civil commitment laws. So Alberta Lassar, just to give you a little preamble to a video clip I'm going to show, she was a teacher. She taught in an elementary school and then later in a university. She was fired twice due to conflicts with the administration. But after the second firing, she became very enraged because she loved teaching. And she was writing and calling up to 100 times a day trying to get her job back. The university finally filed harassment charges out. And when the police came to you know, check into the situation, she believed that the police had been sent by Richard Nixon to kill her. So she jumped out of the window and was hanging there trying to escape and ended up getting committed to a hospital. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to show a little video clip about three minutes long, I've edited it down, that was created by the newspaper that went along with her obituary. So you're going to actually see an interview with Ms. Lassard, as well as the attorney who represented her. So what happened to her led to a transformation of all of the civil commitment laws in the entire country. So being able to see this person and, and hear from the attorney that led the case, and he's also going to show you some, some pictures of where she was held. Lassard was an elementary school teacher for more than 30 years. She also taught at Marquette University, training teachers as reading specialists. It was then that she began hearing voices and feared that goons, trained by Richard Nixon, were coming after her. In a panic on the afternoon of October 29, 1971, Lassard scrambled to the windowsill of her second-story apartment and dangled from the sill. The police came and arrested her and she was committed to the county's mental health hospital. The West Dallas police felt that this was very bizarre conduct. They didn't know how to deal with Alberta, so they, so they said that that conduct was uh, constituted an attempt to commit suicide. And, uh, and on that basis, they took her to the mental health center, and, and uh, she was committed. One day she called me and told me that she was in a place called North Division, which was you know, the county's facility for committing uh, people that they considered to be mentally ill. She asked me to come out and see her, and so I did, and uh, it was a friendly experience. I remember it was a November day, and I think there were bats coming out of the place, and uh, it was shocking. Inside it was even more shopping, it was uh, essentially it was a jail, wasn't a treatment facility. She very badly wanted to go home and was being held against her will. So I went back to my office and I read the law and I couldn't really believe it. People be, could be committed uh, indefinitely uh, on the signatures of uh, three persons with no right to hear. So if there's no right to hear any questions, no right to a lawyer, there's no right to cross-examine, there's no right to do A few weeks later, civil rights lawyers filed a lawsuit in federal court, not only asking for Lassara's release, 
but also a look at the constitutionality of committing people with no rights to a trial or the representation of a lawyer. In October 1972, the federal court ruled that the procedure for committing people like Lassard was unconstitutional. Unless they were found to be an imminent danger to themselves or others, beyond a reasonable doubt, they could not be kept behind locked doors. I think everybody hates being from both sides. Those who want people committed and those who don't want people committed. They both hate me because they cannot get their way on what they want concerning mental commitment. Okay, I love ending with that quote because it really highlights the problem and the theme of this book. She got what she wanted. She was free. And everybody hated her for it. You know? So the people who were anti-commitment were angry because the U.S. Supreme Court didn't abolish all commitment. And the people who were pro-commitment didn't like it because it added restrictions and made it harder to do. And the theme of our book is this battleground. And when you, when you read the book and you get to the last chapter, our conclusion is to remember that within this battleground, there's a human being who is being caught in the crossfire. And we want to change it from a battleground to a discussion table where all these voices are heard. Okay, now to finish out the, uh, the Alberta Lassard story, um, it's really instructive. So what happened with her? She was freed. And uh, not too surprisingly, unfortunately, she ended up being homeless and was arrested more than 100 times. Not surprisingly, well, surprisingly, the good thing that happened was that one of the people who really took an interest in her was a former psychiatric nurse who had taken care of her during the hospitalization, who then became a police officer. And this guy would go out when she was homeless and bring her food. He eventually became the police chief. And when she became elderly and medically ill and ended up in a nursing home, he would visit her in the nursing home and was planning to visit her on the day he found out that she had died. Um, one of the things we talked about here was how to avoid involuntary care. And we talk about CIT training today like it's a totally new idea. This is why we talk about history, because there were people before, in the good old days of small-town America, where the police were doing this automatically, because that's just what people did back then. And we need to rediscover that spirit. Okay. So how did we go from a situation where a state hospital system was a really good thing, a humane thing to do, to a situation where the hospitals look like that and you have to go to the Supreme Court to get out. I love the quote from this case from Justice Brandeis. Experience should teach us to be most on our guard to protect liberty when the government's purposes are beneficent. The greatest dangers to liberty lurk in insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning but without understanding. My modern interpretation of that is if someone pats you on the back, check your wallet. Okay. <laughs> Good intentions can go awry. All right. Um, Donaldson, I'm, we're kind of running out of time. I want to give time for questions. Donaldson, again, was a case from 1957. He had schizophrenia. He was committed to a hospital in Florida where he stayed for the next 14 years. 
He petitioned for release repeatedly, was never allowed out. His case eventually went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court concluded that a state cannot constitutionally confine in a mental hospital without more a non-dangerous individual who is capable of surviving safely in freedom by himself or with the help of willing and responsible family members. Now, legal scholars have debated for years on what that term without more means, okay? And it's generally been understood to mean that you should provide treatment, that if you take away somebody's liberty, you should give something in return, something that would be helpful for this person. And so this was the case that really started the trend to, of um, mandating the right to treatment, which is why if you get into a hospital and you have an interdisciplinary treatment plan, that's part of the right to treatment that started with the Donaldson case. Okay. All right, so where we're at today. So as a result of all these individual stories I've told you, we now have the steps that we commonly take for granted today, that there are statutory time limits for when someone can be brought in for evaluation or brought in against their will to the hospital. You have to give the person a notice of rights, including the right to be present at a hearing. You have to give them an opportunity to challenge the testimony against them given by witnesses. You have to have an independent fact finder. And if you are committed, it has to be time-limited with periodic review, okay? Now, you would think we'd have this well-established, but as recently as the 1960s, there were still women in Wisconsin, and I'll skip the details of the case, who had been committed for 10 and 20 years without a review of their commitment. That was just in the 1960s, okay? So why did all of this stuff come up recently? Okay, and the point I'm making with this is that these laws and our social policy are created by historical events, okay? Following the Civil War, we had an era of reconstruction and rehabilitation. Following the Vietnam War, you know, when we were protesting, we had, you know, inmates' rights following the riots in Attica. We had um, the civil rights movements. So individual groups are all pressing for expanded freedom and protection of their liberty. Okay. Most recently, we're swinging in the opposite direction. So we have this balance that goes back and forth through time between restriction and containment versus freedom and health and rehabilitation. Right now, we're in the more restrictive phase because of more recent events like 9-11, several high-profile mass shootings. We're also in a very different age because an event that took place in a, in a little region once upon a time would just be localized to that region, and it wouldn't have these far-reaching national consequences. But now we have a series of high-profile events that are immediately distributed through the internet, internet that everybody knows about that can alarm an entire country. So this is where some of our current laws aimed at loosening civil commitment have come from, is these very high-profile events. Um, just a little hint about what's going on, what the cutting-edge stuff is now. Um, so looking at different vulnerable groups, we've talked about people with mental illnesses and criminal defendants. Nowadays, it's undocumented immigrants. Okay? So let's put this history into perspective. If you are an undocumented immigrant, you can be detained, detained indefinitely in, a, in an immigration detention center without a right to an attorney, without a right to a speedy hearing, without any of the due process protections really that we take for granted now for criminal defendants on our mentally ill people. You might also be interested to know that Maryland has a civil commitment law for people who are not mentally ill. Okay, that's a little known fact. 
was passed in the 1950s, and it's a civil commitment for substance abuse treatment law. Okay? It's, most people don't know about that. But now, because of the opioid epidemic, and I'm part of the APA Assembly, so we have people from various district branches across the country talking about legislature's reactions to this, and they're reactivating this idea of civil commitment for substance abuse treatment. This was passed in the 1950s, so think about what was happening back then. We had the creation of Thorazine, we had the creation of Haldol, we had the creation of Imipramine, the first medications that actually treat any mental disorders in the 1950s. We had the creation of the Patuxent Institute, which was thought to be a therapeutic prison where you could cure criminality. Okay? So it's an era of hopefulness. And so again, civil commitment for substance abuse treatment back then was thought to be a very positive thing because it was a way of getting people help because that's what was going on back then. Um, okay, I'm, I'm past my time here. So final slides. Any one of these chapters could easily cover an entire half a day seminar. So I'm just going to give you a brief overview of what else is talked about in the book. Um, we talk about CIT training. We mentioned that in passing. We have a chapter following a CIT officer around and describing what he does. We talk about the process of civil commitment, what it's like to be in the emergency room, what happens once you get to an inpatient unit. We talk about the process of involuntary medication, which could be an entire day-long seminar and is very controversial. And we talk about the use of other involuntary interventions like seclusion and restraints. So with that, I'm, I'm over my time, but we still have a few minutes for questions. Thank you. I'll help you with questions in case there are any. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say the other thing we, we address in the book is psychiatry's role in preventing violence. Um, so we talk about suicide, homicide, and I have a chapter on can involuntary care prevent um, mass murders. Um, and the other thing I wanted to add was I mentioned that, I'm going to see if I can turn this off at this point since it seems to be more of a distraction. Um, I mentioned that um, the mind freedom um, anti-psychiatry movement um, and every year at APA, at our annual meeting of 10,000 psychiatrists or 15,000 psychiatrists from all over the world, uh, CCHR and Mind Freedom picket. Um, and this year we're doing a symposium on the battleground, and one of the Mind Freedom picketers is coming in to talk um, with our group and with Ellen Sachs. So if you're there and you want to come, we'd love to have you. Um, does anybody have questions or comments or a story they want to share? Or thought, Dr. Sharfstein, you always have a thought. <laughs> I do, but I'll keep quiet. We've got one over here. Um, so I just finished reading it today, um, and I just wanted to see if I understood um, Dr. Tory's position. It's, or was that his name? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it sounds like he's pro doing putting people in hospitals unless it's for suicidal reasons. So, um, this is where things get very sticky. With the current idea that you, no, go for it. With the current idea that the standard for involuntary care is that you have a psychiatric illness and that you're dangerous. That means you could be you could be depressed and suicidal. Doctor Tory treats people with schizophrenia who are who have psychosis. They they have trouble um, at least in the course of the illness. Um, judging reality. They're either hallucinating or they're delusional. And so his feeling is that, the, and they don't know that they have an illness. 
Um, so his feeling is the standard should be one more of knowing you have an illness and, and choosing not to get care when you're very sick. And he says, if I was walking out, if I was homeless on the street and psychotic, I would want somebody to give me medication and help me get better. The funny thing about that is if you make that your standard, that somebody doesn't know that they have an illness, that they have an anosognosia, that they're mentally ill and they're not in touch with reality, then if you have, say, an 18-year-old whose boyfriend broke up with her and she's very depressed, and people who are depressed know something's wrong for the most part. They feel sad, they're not getting out of bed, they're not eating, they're not sleeping, and they're tormented. And so the question we had in starting this is, People are upset about being forced into treatment. Shouldn't they be grateful that they've been relieved of their tormenting psychosis and their soul-crushing depression? But so the answer when I asked Dr. Tori, what do you think about suicide? He said, suicide is often a rational choice. Um, he doesn't, he's not talking about somebody who is, he's, he's talking mostly about people with psychosis. So if you're depressed and you say, I don't want treatment, I do know I'm depressed. Um, I think he doesn't treat those people. Um, he's very clear that he thinks if you're psychotic, you should be treated even if you're not dangerous. Um, and he believes people should be forcibly hospitalized even if they're not dangerous. And it, it is a whole different standard than what we're used to thinking of. Um, I asked him how long, and he said three or four weeks. He thought people should be given a trial of medicine to figure out so that they get better and then they can take, they can say whether or not they feel they, should, they want to continue the medicine. So his thinking was, you need to get them better to give them a choice. And he got three or four weeks of medication and that let them decide. Hmm. Yes. You know, I think it, so it's an interesting question to me, and maybe I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this. So many psychiatric illnesses are illnesses of judgment. And judgment is even part of our mental status exam. And if people's judgment is affected by their illness, it is hard to figure out when to go against their wishes in order to treat them, if that makes sense. So, and I, I think of myself as someone who's very respectful of people's rights, but if they no longer have judgment to know what they need, how do we, how do we handle it? Right. Well, I, I was given really, really good advice as a resident by one of my mentors, and I pass it along to all of my students, which is think like a clinician, not like a lawyer. So don't worry about criteria and legal interpretations. Use your best clinical judgment. Establish your core. And but I think of it more as a pol you know, in terms of policy. Like, right. I know what I would do as a clinician, mm -hmm. but what I'm thinking of more, you know, when I see so many people who are not being treated... Mm -hmm. and they end up in prisons, you know, so I'm thinking about that, like, what, you know, how are we managing that? Right. right. Well, this, this is the role of, you know, we, we've both done our turns on the legislative committee for our district branch, and so this is why when these issues come up, either by proposed bills or actual legislation, you know, things that have passed, we're there on the front lines reviewing this stuff every year. I mean, more than 2,000 bills in 10 weeks we go through and pick out anything that relates to mental health that had an effect on our patients, had an effect on our practice, because the people writing the bills and passing the laws aren't clinicians. That, that's why when I teach, I say, this is why you pay your dues, and this is why you get involved, and this is what we're doing for you behind the scenes that you're not aware of. 
Um, and the more we do with that, the better. And if you and you leave that to someone else and think it's not going to affect you, that's that's problematic. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add something that I thought Anne was going to jump in and talk about. So we have very few things we have answers for, right? This is really a discussion, not a here's the answer. But one of the answers we might come up with is psychiatric advanced directives, where when somebody has a chronic illness, you ask them. Not that you want to be voluntarily treated, because if you're dangerous, you're, gonna, you're, you're subject to that. You can't say, let me kill people, let me kill myself. But you can say to somebody, you know, where do you want to be hospitalized? What medicines don't you want used? What are your wishes? If you're ill but not dangerous, do you want us to come in and, and help you when you're saying no? Because some people say our person who had ECT involuntarily, um, at one of the, the places where he was well, he, um, he made his sister his guardian so that she could decide for him to get ECT against his will. And it wasn't really against his will because he had made her his guardian. Very interesting. Gail. So, colleagues, I commend you on getting the discussion of a very, very complicated, multi layered issue. And as a recovering policy wonk, um, I think that what we have is the perfect storm. We have the perfect storm because we don't have enough uh, community based access to health care in general in particular to mental health care. We have, in addition to that, an awareness where we have people, and I'm a child psychiatrist, so people are actually receiving treatment earlier in their development that need follow-up and care and management in the community system, and we don't have it in the educational system that can support that. Then if you add to that, that we are in, the, we are in a managed care setting, and the influence of managed care. If you add to that, we really don't have any evidence, Dr. Sharpstein, that allows us to understand what is a reasonable length of stay. Just because somebody's getting better doesn't mean they're well enough to go home and live independently. Then we see people leaving hospitals that are required to do their own follow-up, and they're still ill. So just because someone no longer meets the medical necessity criteria for inpatient doesn't mean that they meet the continued stay for the community side, too. Then if you add to that, access to care is directly related to the type of insurance you have and the type of benefits that are associated. And there's some insurances, like Medicare, that don't pay for certain things that would be beneficial to you to keep you in the community. So I thank you for bringing that up. I think the responsibility, doctors, is to continue to have the discussion and to get people more involved in understanding what access is, what rights are, and then also what training is. Because I commend you on your ability to try to define judgment and dangerousness, but you can get that different evaluation in different emergency rooms when the standard is exactly the same, but <clears throat> the evaluation is subjective and based on a lot of factors. And so until we can kind of sit and wrestle some of these issues, um, we're still going to be faced with those kind of challenges. Thank you. You can um, join us on our next. <laughs> okay, that was great. Um, a lot of what you're talking about, though, is voluntary care. And, um, and neither of us are against voluntary care in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, some people who've had voluntary care later decide they, they, 
I think if we were more perfect at figuring out exactly who does and doesn't need treatment and what and what it, the implications are, it would be easier. But, but I also think it's the environment. When people are forced into an emergency room that's chaotic, an emergency room, the focus of it is quick assessment and keep moving. Quick assessment and keep moving. It's anxious, a lot of movement. How do we create a welcoming, engaging environment and accept the comfort that it may take six hours to engage somebody into agreeing to an admission as opposed to 15 minutes? They said they didn't want to go. Good, I'm certain. He's got to go upstairs because I have to see another one. I think one of the points we try to make in the book is why bother trying to engage the patient right. if you can just force them to get care? Um, and I think that has become a problem. Um, Eleanor would have signed a form and would have been a voluntary treatment patient, which would have created a whole different dynamic with her and the truth. Because when you have somebody who's an involuntary patient, basically we become the adversaries of the people we're trying to take care of, and it's not ideal. Sometimes it's very helpful, but it's not ideal. And if you can avoid it, if people feel like it was their decision, even if it was, as Dr. Sharfstein likes to talk about, coercion and caring, even if it was coerced, um, it's better than having people feel forced. Uh, this is a wonderful book. Uh, it, is, it is a book that is extremely humane in terms of the, the, the discussion. It, 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 it talks about real people. And I think it's a book that should be read by not only doctors and clinicians who deal with this question every day, but also by the lawyers. The lawyers should read this book. In my view, because it gives you a good sense of what the issues are right in the trenches. But my question for you is again, going away from the immediate clinical encounter, much toward the public health issues. What is the evidence around commitment? What do we know in terms of. You're the fact, you're the, the figure outcomes, person. The outcomes of forced treatment, whether it's an involuntary inpatient treatment or an outpatient treatment. Yeah, you know, what, and what should the research agenda be in terms of taking a look at uh, these issues in a way that would be, I think, much more rational as we design processes and regulations and laws? Right. Well, I mean, those are the magic questions. And the one thing that came up repeatedly through this book, right at the introduction, was how little we actually know. And we don't even know how many people get civilly committed in our country every year. We tried to track that information down. Even the, the program directors didn't have it. And the other challenge is that I mean, there are obvious ethical issues with doing some of the research. You know, in our chapter on violence, we talk about you, know, you can't do a double-blind, placebo-controlled study of civil commitment for people who might be dangerous. Uh, and, and so you're really left with naturalistic studies. You know, the, the one thing I can say is that when it comes to treatment in general, you know, we're going to start creating Registry. Some of the best stuff comes out of Denmark, where they have you know, the, the mental health registry, the legal registry, the mortality registry. And you know what they're showing, fascinating stuff, just came out last year, was that prisoners, violent offenders who are released on psychotropic medications, have a lower risk of reoffending, but only with certain psychotropics. You know, that's the stuff that's fascinating to me. And when it comes to uh, prevention of suicide, you know, I don't know about involuntary treatment, but I can tell you that with access to care, if you screen large populations, identify people at risk, and intervene, 
you can decrease suicides. That's been very clearly shown in our correctional system over the last 30 years. So when the Supreme Court mandated that all these jails and prisons, you know, someone coming in the door has to be screened for suicide risk. And then once you identify them, you can't just put them in a cell and leave them there. You have to actually do something about it. And the suicide rate in jails and prisons in the country dropped dramatically over the next 30 years. And in the last few years, it's been starting to creep up again. But when you look at the people who are dying, it's not the people who show up on the positive screens. So our early intervention is you know, the, the secondary interventions are working and we're preventing deaths, but now we have to change our strategies. We have to be able to figure out ways to are developing the new onset disorders and the new risk factors after they've come into the system. So that's what we're addressing now and changing some of our interventions to look at that. And, and again, many of these things are voluntary measures. We don't know if... Um, if Involuntary care um, decreases suicide rates. Um, the problem is that suicide is such an unusual outcome. Even though it's a common cause of death for young people or a common cause of death in certain age groups, it's still a rare event. So often in looking at treatments and, and suicide, they look at suicidal ideation, whether you're thinking about suicide. And the number of people who are thinking about suicide is much higher than the number of people who die by suicide. So we don't know if involuntary treatment um, prevents suicide. We, we do know, uh, anecdotally, I have patients who tell me that the hospital saved them. Um, they're generally voluntary patients, um, but some involuntary. So we do know a little information about outpatient civil commitment, uh, the, the early literature is suggesting that it is helpful in reducing rehospitalization rates, um, but some of the challenges to that are that it's population specific. In the urban areas where they have intensive outpatient civil commitment, and outpatient civil commitment, for example, in New York, means medication, case management, and housing. It's expensive. <clears throat> yes, it is. And, and what the state of New York had to do was they had to reallocate their funding. So they moved, they had to reallocate money designated for some of their rural areas and move it into urban boroughs of New York to fund that project, to that, to that program. <clears throat> but it clearly demonstrated that their re readmission rates um, had been reduced. It also seems to demonstrate that their rearrest rate is lower. But overall, it's somewhat cost-shifting because they don't have 10, 15 years of data to look at the overall cost on their state budget. Um, and the other thing that it did include was quality of life indicator. We want to see how these people feel about it. Um, so there is some information out there. Maryland is one of five states that does not have an ambulatory outpatient civil commitment law. However, there is a project underway now that is developed a process where it is a voluntary um, participation in a program that provides more intensive services um, that we would like to look at to see if that program is cost effective, reduces readmissions to hospitals, has an effect that reduces the risk of, of um, homelessness. Um, because if we can demonstrate that, then we may not have to go to an outpatient civil commitment um, setting. But remember, we have an inpatient civil commitment. We don't have an outpatient. Um, Kayla? You look like you want to say something. I think we have time for just one more. Um, 
Okay. Um, oh, can we have two? <laughs> the lady in the in the oh, yes. yes. I just wanted to say that um, I did have a personal story to share, both as a um, professional working as a psychiatric social worker, and then as a patient in a hospital, involuntary, and what I experienced while I was there. But the most important thing that I would like to say to each of you and the people here is that the most important thing is to remember that we all want to be treated with respect. And that is one of the things that I find is really missing from the psychiatric field, uh, in particular from the doctors and the people who staff the psychiatric hospitals. And so, again, uh, to follow up with your statement, I'd like to commend both of you. And also, you know, I read um, Dr. Jameson's book years ago. And if more of us would come out and say who we are and what we have experienced, then it pulls other people in so that we can begin to talk about this and have an open discussion. So thank you very much. And thank you for sharing your story. Um, I, I will tell you, when we started forming the book with our editor, she kept saying to me, what do you want to say? You can't just say, be kind to patients. <laughs> um, and a few weeks ago, there were stories about how in Colorado they, and in um, Rapid City, South Dakota, the hospital administrator said, you know, if we have overflow psychiatric patients, no longer are we going to put them in, um, in medical beds. Instead, we're going to call the sheriff and have them go to jail. And I thought, you know... Maybe it's not such a bad thing to say be kind to patients. That's just crazy. And I'm not a psychiatrist or any kind of medical That's okay. professional. I'm a writer with an interest in the history of psychiatry. But I want to share a personal story. Um, I had a cousin who was mentally ill. And not being a doctor, I don't have a diagnosis for you. But I do know that he was sort of in and out of homelessness. And my aunt was doing her best to and who's in and out of hospital, and she had resources so she could afford to do things for him. Um, but eventually, he um, had diabetes. And you've probably heard a million of these stories, but I just want to tell one because it's sort of to me, it's like, what is it, you know, what, what is personally at stake? So he got diabetes, he was not, because of the mental illness, he was not capable of taking care of himself. And so he was ill, and his the diabetes ravaged his body, um, and he was in and out of hospitals being treated for all sorts of heart attacks and colons and accumulating diabetes. And I would go visit him in the hospital, my aunt would be there, and I would find I said to her, why don't you just hospitalize him? And, you know, at a psychiatric institute, I'm naively thinking, could she do the mother? She could, because then he could get his, somehow get medicated and get straightened out mentally so he could take care of himself physically. And she said um, she didn't want to do that for whatever reason. And uh, she took him home and he died. Mm-hmm. So this, in his early 40s. And so to me, the story is behind everything you're talking about policy. These are not inconsequential things. You know, that, anyway, that's my story. You know, well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. These, these are people, but I'm going to tell you that even if the laws align to let her involuntarily treat him, and even if she decides to do that, 
the insurance companies are still aren't necessarily going to allow you to. You know, there, there are all these different factors coming into play, but the insurance standard for being in a hospital is pretty much you need to be dangerous. There were people who called me from all over the country when I was writing this, in fact, from all over the world. Um, I don't think they called, they emailed from Australia and South Africa. Um, but one woman was telling me her story in California, and I thought, well, I mean, you know you're going to lose at a hearing. I said to her, why didn't you sign in? And she said, oh, I was told that I couldn't sign in because then my insurance company wouldn't pay. Uh-huh. It's, uh, I mean, there's, it's not just the law. You have to have somebody who's going to treat the patient. So you're going to go back to Australia happy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.